0: Anti-authoritarian parenting Parenting is so often based on authoritarianism that many cannot even imagine what non-authoritarian parenting would look like It is important to clarify the effect that losing the authority superstition would have on parenting It would not mean that parents would no longer put restrictions on what their children could do nor would it rule out parents controlling their children against their will in many situations but it would dramatically change the mindset of both parents and children. These days, teaching children right and wrong and teaching them to obey are seen by most people as the same thing. However, a parent can command a child to do something wrong just as easily as he can command him to do something right. Contrary to what authoritarian parenting teaches, the fact that a parent issued a command does not make it automatically right and does not make the child obligated to obey. If, for example, a parent commands his child to shoplift, the child has no moral obligation to do so and disobedience would be perfectly justified though probably hazardous. Of course, the child might not understand that stealing is wrong if the parents told him to steal. On the other hand a parent may impose a necessary justified restriction on his child which the child does not like and does not believe is justified. In either case the child is only obligated to do whatever he deems is right. The alternative would be that he has a moral obligation to do what he deems is wrong which is impossible. This is where the difference lies the authoritarian parent teaches the child that obedience in and of itself is a moral imperative regardless of the command e.g. because I am your father and I said so the non-authoritarian parent may also impose restrictions upon the child but he does not demand that the child like it nor does he pretend that such restrictions are just simply because the parent imposed them in other words The non authoritarian parent may see the need, because the child does not yet have the knowledge or understanding to be competent enough to make all of his own choices, to force certain restrictions upon a child regarding bedtime, diet, etc., but he does not claim that the child has any moral obligation to obey without question. The sooner the child can be taught the reason for a rule, the sooner he will understand why doing what his parents says will benefit him. Of course, that is not always possible, especially when children are very young. The parent who stops the child from eating a box of candy is benefiting the child, who does not yet have an understanding of self-control to serve his own interests. But to teach the child that he should feel a moral obligation to abide by rules which he sees as unfair, pointless, stupid, or even hurtful just because authority told him to is to teach that child the most dangerous lesson there can be that he is morally obligated to put up with unfair, pointless, stupid, hurtful things if they are done by authority. To avoid passing on the authority superstition, parents should never cite because I said so as the reason a child should do something the parents should express that there are rational reasons for the restrictions, even if the child cannot comprehend those reasons. In other words, the justification for the rules is not that the parents have the right to forcibly impose any rules they want on their children, but that parents, hopefully, have so much more understanding and knowledge than the children that the parents must make many of the child's choices for him until he becomes competent to make his own choices. Even more important is how a parent controls his child's behavior towards others. It is extremely important to teach a child that it is inherently wrong to intentionally harm another person, except when necessary to defend an innocent. But if, instead of that principle, the parent teaches obey me and then commands the child not to hit others, he has taught the child obedience, but not morality. If the child refrains from hitting others, not because he understands that doing so is wrong, but only because he was told not to, then he is functioning in the same manner as an amoral robot and has learned nothing about being a human being. The short-term practical result might look the same, i.e. the children refrains from hitting others, but the lessons learned are very different. When the child who is merely taught to obey grows up, and some other authority tells him that he should harm others. He almost certainly will, because he was trained to do as he was told. On the other hand, the child who was taught to respect the rights of others and was taught the principles of self-ownership and non-aggression will not lightly abandon those principles just because someone claiming to be authority tells him to. Children learn by example. If a child sees his parents always acting as unquestioning subjects of a ruling class the child will learn to be a slave If, instead the parents demonstrate in their daily lives how to use and follow one's own heart and mind the child will learn to do likewise The child must understand that it is his duty not merely to follow the rules of being a good person but to figure out for himself what the rules of being a good person are The standards which a self-owner lives by may still be described as rules but the worth of such rules does not come from the fact that an authority issued them but because the individual believes that such rules describe inherently moral behavior. This is not to say that everyone agrees upon what is moral though there is a wide consensus on some basic principles but even when each person's behavior guided by his own imperfect incomplete understanding of right and wrong the overall results would be drastically improved compared to the authoritarian alternative in which basically good people do things they know to be wrong because they feel compelled to do whatever authority tells them to as demonstrated by the Milgram experiments Again though many people falsely assume that a society without a centralized rule-making authority would mean every man for himself Group cooperation and agreements do not require authority and those children who spend their formative years learning to interact with different people of all ages on a mutually voluntary basis instead of learning to blindly do as they are told are far better equipped to form relationships and enter into joint efforts based on agreement, compromise and cooperation. Such voluntary interaction can take place between two people or between two million Even the limited freedom experienced by Americans has demonstrated that even extremely complex industries can be based entirely upon the willing participation and voluntary cooperation of everyone involved. And history has also demonstrated that the moment the method of organization based upon centralized, coercive control is used, such as occurs in the so-called planned economy, productivity crashes and poverty and enslavement appear. Yet most children are still raised in authoritarian environments with the claim that that will best prepare them for life in the real world. In truth, it prepares them only for a lifetime of enslavement. Halfway there In any group of people that have given up the authority myth, whether they are a small group of friends or the inhabitants of a town or the population of an entire continent, the frequency and severity of violent conflicts and acts of aggression inside that group will dramatically be lower than it is elsewhere, where most people, by the way of voting and other political actions, advocate and perpetuate aggression on a regular basis. However, though the individuals in such a group would have little to fear from each other, they still would likely have to deal with acts of aggression from those outside of the group who still adhere to the belief in government. An individual whose mind has been freed, but who still lives in a society plagued with the delusion of authority, will be at constant risk of being the target of authoritarian aggression. Being free in one's mind, understanding the concept of self-ownership, does not necessarily cause one to be physically free. However, it can make an enormous positive difference by opening up countless new means through which people can try to cope with, avoid, or even resist authoritarian attempts to control them. The individual who takes pride in being a law abiding citizen has only one way to even attempt to achieve freedom, which is almost never effective begging his masters to change their laws. On the other hand, one who understands that he owns himself, owes no allegiance to any supposed master and needs no legislative permission to be free, has many more options. And the more people who have escaped the superstition, the easier avoidance or resistance becomes. For example, even a small number of self-owners can create channels of commerce which circumvent the usual controls of extortion schemes imposed by governments. Ironically, this entirely legitimate and moral form of voluntary interaction is often referred to as the black market or as doing business under the table whereas the usual system of aggression, coercion and extortion is viewed as legitimate and righteous by the believers in government. In reality, the legitimacy of any trade or any other human interaction does not depend on whether some authority knows about it and controls it as the concept of black market implies but depends only upon whether what occurs is mutually consensual Those who understand this can find many ways in which to circumvent or defeat attempts by government to coercively control and exploit them Many acts of aggression done in the name of law can be avoided or defeated fairly easily by a relatively small number of people if they feel no automatic moral obligation to do as they are told. Of course, this is not always the case. If the gang called government does anything well it is exerting brute force whether in the form of military action or domestic law enforcement. However, in most cases Most of all the power wielded by those in government is the result not of guns, tanks, and bombs, but of the perceptions of their victims. If 99% of the population obeys the ruling class out of a feeling of obligation or duty to do so, the remaining 1% can usually be controlled by brute force. With the approval of the 99%. But if a more substantial percentage of the population feels no duty to obey the amount of brute force needed to control them becomes enormous For example many of the inhabitants of the United States now surrender about half of what they earn in taxes at various levels and most feel obligated to do so But if a foreign power somehow invaded and conquered the land imposing a 50% tax would be impossible because the people would feel no moral, legal, or patriotic duty to comply. 200 million workers would find 200 million ways to use evasion, deception, secrecy, or even outright violence to avoid or defeat such attempts by the foreign thieves to enslave them. Today, there is only one gang capable of oppressing the American people, the U.S. government. This is because it is the one gang imagined by most people to have the right to coerce and control, regulate, and rob and extort, tax the American people. A common concern among statists is, without a strong government to protect them, some foreign power would just come in and take over. But such fears completely overlook how large a role perception plays in the ability to oppress. An area of the land size of the U.S inhibited by a hundred million gun owners, in addition to a hundred million other people who would likely become gun owners if an invasion occurred, would be impossible to occupy and control by brute force alone. History gives many examples, e.g. the Warsaw Ghetto in World War II, the Vietnam War, the aftermath of the war in Iraq, of how even an enormous, enormous, technologically advanced standing army can be indefinitely frustrated by a relatively small number of armed insurgents and the land inhibited by self-owners has another huge advantage in that it is literally impossible for them to collectively surrender if there is no government pretending to represent the population and no one who claims to speak on behalf of the people as a whole there is literally no way for them to give up without each and every individual surrendering. A good way to grasp the reality of the situation is to consider the matter from a perspective of the leader of the invaders. How would one begin to try to invade and permanently occupy an area in which many millions of the inhabitants who could be hiding anywhere can kill anything within at least 100 yards as any decent hunter can do? An inspiring tyrant would have a far better chance of gaining power over people by running for office, whereby obtaining a perceived right in the minds of his victims to rule and control them. Large-scale oppression, especially since the advent of firearms, depends a lot more on mind control than it does on body control. Those who crave domination gain much more power by convincing their victims that it is wrong to disobey their commands than by convincing their victims that it is merely dangerous but moral to disobey. No matter how much the people complain and protest, as long as the people obey the law, the commands of politicians, the tyrants have little to fear. As long as their attempts to control and extort are seen as legal acts of authority, And as long as the people therefore feel an obligation to comply unless and until the ruling class changes such laws the people will remain enslaved in body because they remain mentally enslaved. Ironically many people still believe that a strong government is the only thing that can protect the people as a whole when the belief in government is actually the only thing which can oppress the people as a whole. Brute force alone cannot do it on any large scale or for any prolonged period of time. Even a gang with tanks, planes, bombs, and other weapons has no power to control an armed populace for long unless it first dupes the people into believing that it has the right to control them. In other words, only a gang imagined to be authority can get away with long term oppression and enslavement. As a result, Government, or the belief in it Instead of being essential to the protection of individual rights Is essential only for the prolonged and widespread violation of individual rights Ironically, even most of those who recognize government as the biggest threat to liberty today Still insist that government, of some type, is necessary for protection The belief in authority is so strong that it can convince otherwise rational people that the very thing that routinely robs, coerces, and assaults them is needed to protect them from robbery, coercion, and assault. The fact that government has always been an aggressor, and has never been purely a protector, anywhere in the world at any time in history, does not shake them of their cult-like belief in the magical powers and virtues of the abstract, mythological entity called authority. The Road to Justice Many large-scale injustices in history would have quickly collapsed or would have never started if not for authority condoning and enforcing such injustices. The evils of slavery, for example, are often blamed on racism and greed, but authority played a huge role in making slavery economically feasible. If there was not a huge, organized network of law enforcers, to capture escaped slaves and any who helped them escape, how long would slavery have continued? If freeing slaves was not illegal and thus immoral in the eyes of authoritarians, how much larger, more effective would the Underground Railroad have been? In fact, it probably would have not been known as the Underground Anything if it was not illegal. The abolitionist movement consisted of people who thought slavery was immoral and who wanted laws changed to officially declare slavery to be immoral and illegal. If, instead of petitioning for a change in laws, all the abolitionists were actively freeing slaves, the slave trade would most likely have collapsed decades earlier, if it ever happened at all. Shipping slaves halfway around the world would be a very risky business indeed if, the moment you landed, your cargo might be forcibly liberated. The problem is that most people believe that even immoral, unjust laws should be obeyed until the law is changed, showing that such people's loyalty to the myth of authority is stronger than their loyalty to morality, and doing what the masters tell them is more important to them than doing what they know is right. And mankind has suffered greatly because of it. The ability of people to resist tyranny depends largely upon whether they accept the myth of authority or not Those who can see the injustice committed by government but who continue to believe that they must follow the law and work within the system will never achieve justice On the other hand those who do not view the political megalomaniacs as rightful rulers those who do not feel an obligation to obey an immoral law those who do not feel the need to treat what is actually a parasite class a gang of political thieves and thugs as untouchable respectable and honorable have a far better chance of defeating legal tyranny and most tyranny and oppression which has occurred throughout history was done legally There are many methods available to those willing to illegally resist injustice and tyranny Including everything from passive resistance to nonviolent sabotage to things such as assassination and other forcible resistance, depending on the severity of the oppression and the individual's own values, conscience, and beliefs about when, if ever, the use of violence is appropriate. One may choose any number of ways to defeat tyranny. Some will simply try to stay under the radar avoiding the attention of state enforcers. Some may choose civil disobedience, such as a large group openly smoking marijuana in front of a police station. Some may choose a more active but nonviolent method, such as slashing the tires of police cars or destroying other property used to commit state aggression. Others may choose the method of openly violent resistance, such as occurred in the American Revolution. By analogy, the intended victim of a robbery, the non-governmental kind, may try to evade the thief or outsmart him or even kill him if it comes down to that, whatever it takes to avoid being victimized. Likewise, those who recognize that legal evil is still evil and resisting is still justified would not waste time on elections and lobbying politicians for change in legislation they would simply do whatever they could to protect themselves and possibly others from being victimized by such legal aggression. Beyond a certain point, the more people resist, the less violence is necessary to do so. If a local police force has a dozen narcotics officers, people whose main job is to commit acts of aggression against others who have used neither force nor fraud, and several hundred civilians let it be known that they believe that they have the right to use whatever it takes, including deadly force, to stop any attempted kidnappings, home invasions, or similar acts of aggression committed by narcotics officers. The aggressors, the police, if they did not have any bigger authoritarian gang to appeal to for help, would simply give up to avoid being exterminated. The deterrent effect that works against private criminals can work just as well against government criminals. In India, Mahatma Gandhi and his followers used widespread passive disobedience to undermine British control of that country. Alcohol prohibition in the United States is another example of an immoral law that was basically disobeyed out of existence. The high levels of disobedience along with the refusal of most jurors to give their blessing to the legal aggression, along with some acts of violent resistance, e.g. tarring and feathering revenuers, made the immoral law unenforceable. The legislators eventually repealed it in an attempt to save face because having an unenforceable law on the books goes a long way toward destroying the ruling class's legitimacy in the eyes of its victims. Anywhere the people feel no moral obligation to comply with authoritarian demands, any legal acts of aggression can be ignored out of existence. When the number of self-owners is smaller, however, sometimes violence is necessary to defeat legal acts of aggression. And if only a few people recognize the illegitimacy of legal oppression, forcible resistance often backfires. Where there is oppression, there is always violence. It is usually one-sided with the agents of authority committing most or all of the violence. The man who passively cooperates while claiming to be against violence is in fact rewarding the violence of the state. When an act of aggression is committed, whether by authority or anyone else, nonviolence, by definition, ceases to be an option. The only question is whether the aggressive violence will go unchallenged. Or whether defensive force will be used to counter it Either way, violence will occur Of course, the thieves, thugs, and murderers who declare their crimes to be legal Which every tyrant in history has done Will always brand anyone who resists them as criminals and terrorists Only those who feel no shame at being labeled criminals because they have shed the myth of authority and recognized the term law is often used to characterize something evil as something good, have any chance at all of achieving freedom. Again, somewhat ironically, the more people there are who understand self-ownership and the mythical nature of authority and who are willing to fight for what is right and fight against what is legal but wrong, the less violent the road to true civilization Peaceful coexistence will be. Side effects of the myth. Looking back in history, there is no shortage of examples of man's inhumanity to man, examples of oppression and suffering, violence and hatred, and situations and events which do not reflect well on the human race in general. And though many of the most blatant injustices in history, were the obvious product of the belief in government, such as war and overt oppression, many other injustices which are not usually attributed to government action would also have been impossible without the involvement of authority. In addition to the example of whether slavery could have existed had it not been legally enforced, as mentioned above, similar questions could be asked about the treatment of the American Indians if not for the authoritarian government edicts and the state mercenaries to enforce them, would there have been such a large-scale, concerted effort to exterminate or forcibly evict the natives from the lands they had inhabited for generations? No doubt there would still have been smaller conflicts due to the clash of cultures and demands for farming and hunting lands. But would it have been in anyone's personal interest to engage in large-scale violent combat? After open slavery was ended in the United States at about the same time that legal slavery the income tax first came into being racial tensions and violent conflicts continued. Many believe that government then came along and saved the day. In reality violent conflict between the races was encouraged by authority. For many years racial segregation was forcibly imposed via laws. Ironically, racial tensions were then exacerbated further by government-mandated integration, which sought to coerce people of different races and cultures to mix, whether they wanted to or not. Again, the result was violence. During the entire fiasco, some schools and businesses, if left in freedom, would have chosen segregation and some would have chosen integration. If not for government trying to forcibly impose one official policy on everyone, Parents could simply have chosen which schools to send their children to, segregated or not. And shoppers could simply have chosen which businesses to patronize, segregated or not. Not only was much of the violence committed against blacks done directly by government enforcers, the police, but even much of the privately committed violence was the result of anger over people being forced by government to deal with people of another race and culture. It is silly to think that forcing people apart, or forcing people together, will make people happier, nicer, or more open-minded and tolerant. In neither case was the peace or security of either race served by authoritarian intervention. While it is impossible to say exactly how widespread or prolonged segregation and racism would have been without government involvement, It is common sense that if people of all races and religions are allowed the freedom to choose who to associate with, it is at least possible for very different cultures to peacefully coexist. But when government gets involved, and the debate is between forcing races to remain separate, or forcing races to mingle, obviously, someone will be angered either way. This is not to say that every point of view is equally valid. The point is that people of vastly different world views, however wise or stupid, open-minded or bigoted, informed or ignorant their views may be, can usually coexist peacefully, even in close proximity, unless government gets involved. Different people may not like each other, may not approve of each other's beliefs and lifestyles, and, in fact, may harshly criticize or condemn other cultures but that does not mean they cannot peacefully coexist with both sides refraining from violent aggression. But whenever government gets involved, the coercion inherent in all law makes certain that people will not just get along. Another example of the indirect, deleterious effects of government action is the fact that violence associated with the drug trade, the production and distribution of illegal substances, exists only because of narcotics laws, by outlawing a substance or a behavior, even when all the participants are willing adults, the politicians create a black market, which not only has a huge profit potential due to limiting the supply, but creates a situation which specifically deprives customers and suppliers of any legal protection. For example, if a drug dealer is robbed or assaulted by the police or anyone else, he is unlikely to call law enforcers to help him. Outlawing something consensual, whether it be prostitution, gambling, or drug use, almost guarantees that the market will be controlled by whichever gang is the most violent or has paid off the most cops and other officials. Again, a perfect before-and-after example of this was alcohol prohibition in the United States. When alcohol became illegal it was immediately taken over by organized crime which was renowned not only for its violence but also for its ability to bribe government agents and officials. When alcohol became legal again all of the related violence stopped almost instantly. Despite the crystal clear example of the horrible results of enacting laws to prohibit vices most people still support laws against behaviors and habits they find distasteful. As a result, the related violence continues. Instead of being recognized as a problem which exists because of government and its laws, it is still imagined to be a problem which government must fight against. The same could be said of the infamous violence of loan sharks who deal with illegal gambling and the violence of pimps in places where prostitution is illegal. In such cases, even better than a before-and-after comparison is a side-by-side comparison. Does gambling lead to more violence in Atlantic City, where it is legal, or in places where it is illegal? Does prostitution pose a bigger threat to all involved in Amsterdam, where it is legal, or in places where it is illegal? This is not to say that prostitution, gambling, and drugs, including alcohol, are good things, But that, good or bad, introducing the coercion of government into a situation does not do away with such vices, but only makes them more dangerous for everyone involved, and often for people who are not involved. Least anyone still imagine that vice laws are the result of good intentions, the politicians are well aware that gambling, prostitution, and illegal drug use still occur in government prisons. The politicians know full well that even constant captivity, surveillance, random searches and harsh punishments cannot prevent such behaviors in people who are kept in closely monitored cages. Laws obviously cannot eradicate such behaviors from an entire country. But they can, and do, supply tyrants with a ready excuse for ever-expanding power. And that is exactly why governments enact vice laws to begin with to create crime where there was none, in an attempt to justify the existence of authoritarian power and control. In a world without the myth of authority, many people, including this author, would still strongly disapprove of drug use, prostitution, and other vices, but they would be unlikely to support efforts to have such behaviors violently suppressed. Not only would they usually feel unjustified in advocating violence if they did not have the excuse of authority to hide behind, but they would be unlikely to want to provide the billions of dollars necessary to wage a large-scale, violent campaign against such widespread activities. Even the most judgmental person would have both economic and moral incentives to leave others in peace. As well as the fear of retaliation from any he chose to commit acts of aggression against. Of course, open criticism of lifestyles and behaviors, and attempts to persuade people to change their ways, are a perfectly acceptable part of human society. In fact, if people had to try to use reason and verbal persuasion to win people over, instead of using the brute force of government, perhaps the targets would be more open to listening. At the very least, people would no longer turn an issue of bad habits into an issue of bloodshed and brutality, as it happens now with all attempts to legislate morality. The flip side to the notion that if it's illegal, it must be bad, is if it's legal, it must be okay. Perhaps the biggest example of this is the fact that in 1913, the U.S. government not only legalized slavery via the income tax, directly and forcibly confiscating the fruits of people's labor, but also, by way of the Federal Reserve Act, legalized a level of counterfeiting and bank fraud which boggles the mind. In short, the politicians gave bankers legal permission to make money out of thin air and to loan such fake, fabricated money out at interest to others, including governments Though most people are unaware of the specifics of how such huge frauds and robberies occur via fiat currencies and fractional reserve banking, many people now have a gut instinct that the banks are doing something deceptive and corrupt. What they fail to realize is that it was government which gave the banks permission to defraud and swindle the public out of literally trillions of dollars. Another particularly controversial example of how a debate of legality can trump a debate about facts and morality is the issue of abortion. One side lobbies for authority to make or keep abortion legal and then defends the practice based upon its legality. The other side pushes for abortion to be outlawed in the hopes of having the violence of authority used to prevent the practice. In logical terms, The only relative question, which is a religious, biological, philosophical question, not a legal question, is at what point does a fetus count as a person? The answer to that question dictates whether abortion amounts to murder or is the equivalent of having a kidney removed. However, instead of addressing the only question that actually matters, as complex and controversial as it might be, both sides usually focus instead on trying to get the violence of authority on their side. As another example of legalized injustice, almost everyone is aware of how outrageous and irrational lawsuits have become, e.g., trespassing criminals successfully suing property owners after injuring themselves during a break-in. But they fail to realize that it is the decrees of government-appointed judges which allow it to happen at all. In addition to government being able to legally steal from one person to give to another, government also creates, via the current system of litigation, a mechanism whereby one person can directly and legally rob another. Laws, in the name of environmentalism, are also used for immoral power grabs in both directions. With enough money a company which is actually polluting and thus infringing on property rights of others can trade campaign contributions for legal permission to pollute. At the same time, they use environmental laws to crush competition by creating and enforcing a maze of environmental regulations, many of them unnecessary or counterproductive, sometimes idiotic, to keep smaller companies out of the market. Additionally, Politicians can use vague threats of environmental dangers as excuses to gain control of private industry, to control the behaviors of millions, or to extort more money for their own purposes. In many industries, success now depends less upon providing a valuable service at a reasonable price than it does upon obtaining special favors and preferential treatment from government. This can be in the form of direct handouts, e.g. grants or subsidies, political trading, e.g. no-bid government contracts, licensing schemes, such as in the medical industry, tariffs or international trade, regulatory control and favoritism, and many other means. The result of all of these, higher prices, inferior products and services, fewer choices, and so on, is often assumed to be the result of the shortcomings of private industry, instead of being recognized for what it is, the adverse consequences of authoritarian control over human interaction. Another example of the side effect of authoritarianism is the fact that major economic crashes are always the result of government tampering with commerce, credit, and currencies. Short of total physical destruction, The only way to destroy an entire economy Is to meddle with the medium of exchange The money Through legalized counterfeiting Via the insurance of fabricated credit And the issuance of fiat currency Most people Being ignorant of even basic economics View inflation and other economic problems As natural Unfortunate but unavoidable occurrences In truth They are symptoms of large scale legalize fraud and theft Immigration laws give another example of indirect damage and secondary problems caused by government Aside from the obvious direct coercion involved such laws cause problems that would not exist otherwise including first the lucrative often vicious racket of smuggling illegals into the country Second illegals Being easy targets for human trafficking and other forms of exploitation because they do not dare speak out or seek help. Third, illegals having trouble finding useful, gainful employment and therefore resorting to theft because they cannot legally be employed. And fourth, people being forced to live under tyrannical regimes because they cannot physically escape. More generally, because illegals are classified as criminals and often viewed as undesirables and receive neither respect nor protection from much of the citizenry, there is less of an incentive for them to try to fit in or otherwise behave in a law abiding manner. Even many problems that seem to be non governmental in nature exist because of some law. Of course, There are, and always will be, instances of fraud and theft committed by unscrupulous individuals acting on their own. But most people are completely unaware of how many seemingly private swindles, schemes, and rackets are not only allowed by authority, but encouraged and rewarded by the laws of government, whether intentionally or accidentally. Having no truly free market to compare it to, many continue to assume that state coercion is necessary when all it actually does is hinder and interfere with human productivity and progress. What society could be? It is impossible to even begin to imagine in how many ways history could have been different if the superstition of authority had collapsed long ago. Obviously, the atrocities of Nazi Germany, Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, Pol Pot's Cambodia, and many more would never have happened. Furthermore, while there could still be violent regional cultural or religious clashes, large-scale wars simply could not and would not happen without soldiers blindly obeying a perceived authority. If the enormous amount of resources, effort, and ingenuity that have been poured into mass destruction, war, have been put into something productive, where would we be today? If instead of spending such a huge amount of time and effort struggling over who should have the reins of power and what that power should be used for, people had spent all those years being inventive and productive, what might the world now look like? What if every person had been allowed to support what he wanted instead of having government robbing everyone and then having a never-ending argument over how those public funds should be spent? What if instead of arguing over which centralized authoritarian plan should be forcibly imposed on everyone, people lived their own lives and pursued their own dreams? Who can even imagine how far humanity as a whole could have progressed by now? This is not to say that without the belief in authority, personal conflicts would never arise. They would, and they would sometimes end in violence. The difference is that with the belief in government they always end in violence or threats of violence because coercion is all that government ever does whereas people even people of very different viewpoints and backgrounds can usually find ways to peacefully coexist Any situation which authority becomes involved in is automatically solved by force With the issue of same-sex marriage What if instead of an ongoing argument over what views and choices should be forced upon everyone, every church minister, every employer, and every other individual could decide for himself how to live, what he wants to call marriage, and so on? With the issue of prayer in school, what if instead of government creating a hostile conflict by forcibly confiscating money from all property owners to fund one big homogeneous public school system each person Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Atheist, etc. was allowed to choose which schools if any he wanted to support This does not mean that people of different views would like each other or end up believing in the same things It does mean that without believing in the same things they could still peacefully coexist a situation which government does not allow What if, instead of government agencies deciding what drugs and medical treatments it would legally allow people to try, and which practitioners would be licensed to practice, people could make their own choices? In such a scenario, the business of providing customers with unbiased information about various products and services would flourish. Government solutions are always about politicians deciding how to deal with different solutions and then forcibly imposing their ideas on everyone else. But it is neither morally legitimate nor effective on a practical basis to have politicians making everyone else's choices for them. And that is true of all sorts of aspects of human society. What would the world look like if the past hundred years, instead of arguing over how to forcibly limit people's options, which is what every law does, People had spent their time and effort trying new ideas and coming up with new approaches to problems, each person having been allowed to devote his own time, effort, and money to whatever he personally chose to support. What if, instead of a centralized system of forced wealth redistribution, government welfare, people had been left in freedom to decide for themselves the best, most compassionate way to help the needy? Instead of a system that rewards laziness and dishonesty and breeds dependency, we might have a system that actually helps people. What if, instead of government forcing businesses to do whatever the politicians and bureaucrats declared to be safe, people could come up with new ideas and inventions, set their own priorities, and make their own decisions about how best to protect themselves? What if, Instead of having a centralized control machine trying to force people to be fair, people could choose for themselves who to associate with, what deals to make, and so on. Everything government pays for creates conflict. Every public project, from grants given out by the National Endowment for the Arts to grants for studies or businesses to schools, to parks, to everything else public, amounts to robbing thousands or millions of people in order to give money to a few people. Why would anyone expect everyone in an entire country, or even a hundred people, to all exactly agree on how their money should be spent? What if, instead of many trillions of dollars in spending power being diverted and hijacked every year to fund the agenda of politicians and their bureaucrats, the wealth had gone into whatever things the people who earned the money actually cared about and wanted to support. What if, instead of having an economy constantly dragged down by taxation, regulation, and the inflation caused by fiat currency manipulation, there was truly free exchange, each person investing in the fruits of his labors on those things that he values and views as worthwhile? it is impossible to even imagine the levels of technology and prosperity that could be possible. Just as people a hundred years ago could not have imagined all of the riches, comforts, and conveniences we have today. Just as the poor today in the U.S. have many comforts and luxuries which even the royalty did not have just a few decades ago, a truly free society could quickly lead to a level of widespread comfort and safety that few can now imagine. Working three hours a day, instead of eight, might become the norm. As the overall wealth increases, people could make comfortable livings even doing very menial tasks. With the potential for such abundance, providing the necessities of life for the sick or elderly, those with limited productive abilities, would no longer be a problem. Also, as society as a whole becomes richer, people can then afford to pay more attention to environmental concerns. In contrast, when people are struggling to find enough food to feed themselves, they will hardly be concerned about the long-term well-being of the local flora and fauna. The amount of time, effort, and ingenuity that has been hijacked by the ruling classes around the world staggers the mind. Trillions upon trillions of dollars have been stolen by various governments, and spent on conquering and subjugating, killing and destroying, creating not only injustice and suffering, but a gigantic loss of wealth for humanity. Even state programs, supposedly intended to help people, are notoriously inefficient, wasteful, fraudulent, and susceptible to corruption. About a third of all wealth produced in the United States every year is taken by the federal ruling class, and more is taken at the state and county and local levels. While some of that comes back to the general public, much of it is simply used up by the bureaucracies and machinery of government, producing no value in the process. In fact, if a third of everything produced in the U.S. was immediately thrown into the landfill, instead of being given to the federal parasites, the people would be richer than they are now. This is because the state does not simply waste and use up productivity and wealth but it actually uses the wealth it steals to pay people not to be productive e.g. social security AFDC food stamps and other welfare. To pay people to produce things that no one wants e.g. bureaucracies make work programs to pay people to destroy wealth and prosperity e.g the military and to pay people to forcibly interfere with the ability of others to be productive via taxation, regulation, licensing, permits, zoning, the minimum wage, tariffs and trade restrictions, enforced monopolies, imprisoning non-violent otherwise productive people, etc. Add together the amount of productivity directly stolen by the state and the amount of productivity the state forcibly prevents and one can start to see a glimpse of the level of prosperity the whole world would enjoy if not for the giant economic dead weight known as government and the level of prosperity it would enjoy once the superstition of authority has collapsed What humanity could achieve if not hampered by the myth of government staggers the imagination This would include a drastic jump in material comfort and wealth for billions of people and would mean an end to poverty and hunger throughout the world If not for taxes, regulations, and other legal obstacles we already have the means to feed everyone on the planet It would also mean an end to debt for almost everyone Without legalized banking fraud e.g. the Federal Reserve System and the continual taxation of income, property, trade, and inheritance people would be accumulating wealth instead of barely treading water while enriching politicians and bankers and an abundance of material wealth would make it so people could spend most or all of their time and effort on things they love to do rather than having to work long hours doing things they don't enjoy just so they can have food and shelter the lives of average people could be far more enjoyable and fulfilling where now they are often tedious and stressful Ironically the near utopian visions which many tyrants have promised but never delivered can and will eventually be achieved by the exact opposite a truly free society absent any rulers or central controllers If not for the superstition of authority we would already be there What if for the last several thousand years each person had minded his own business and not tried to use government to force his ideas and priorities on others. What if, instead of a giant centralized monster violently intimidating everyone's choices and options, everyone's creativity and ingenuity trying to force conformity and sameness while draining the producers of their ideas and their wealth, different people in different groups had been trying new ideas In figuring out the best ways to solve problems and create a better world, guided by their own beliefs and values. Sadly, the idea still terrifies a lot of people, who still imagine that a world forcibly controlled by politicians would be more safe and civilized than a world inhabited by free human beings, exercising free will and individual judgment. The fact is that those people who put their faith in government to make things work though they are by far the majority and though they may mean well, are the problem. As a result of their indoctrination into the cult of authority, they continue to believe and push for the profoundly insane idea that the only road to peace, justice, and harmonious civilization comes from constant, widespread coercion and forcible government controls, perpetual oppression and enslavement done in the name of law, and the sacrificing of free will and morality at the altar of domination and blind obedience As harsh as that may sound that is the basis of all belief in government Accepting Reality Statists often say show me an example where anarchy society without government has worked Of course Since they are speaking of societies consisting almost entirely of thoroughly indoctrinated authoritarians, human society without a ruling class is rarely even contemplated, much less attempted. Yet the statists use the fact that they have never tried true freedom, because the concept is completely foreign to their way of thinking, as proof that a stateless society wouldn't work. This would be akin to a group of medieval doctors who all use leeches for every ailment, arguing, show me one case where a doctor has cured a headache without the use of leeches. Of course, if none of them have ever considered any treatment other than leeches, there would not be an example of alternative methods working. But this is a testament to the ignorance of the doctors, not the ineffectiveness of the treatments which had never been tried. But the more important point is that anarchy, the absence of government, is what is. If the alleged authority upon which the entire concept of government relies is merely an illusion, as has been proven throughout this book, then saying that society cannot exist without government is exactly as reasonable as saying that Christmas cannot occur without Santa Claus. Society already exists without government, and has been from the beginning. It has been the people imagining an entity with the right to rule, hallucinating the existence of authority, which has made the story of mankind consist largely of oppression, violence, suffering, murder, and mayhem. Ironically, statists often point to the death and suffering which occurs when two or more groups are fighting over who should be in charge. Label that as anarchy and cite it as evidence that without government, there would be chaos and death. But such bloodshed and oppression is the direct, obvious result of the belief in authority, not the result of a lack of government. It is true that, compared to life under a stable, entrenched authoritarian regime, life in a country where the people are fighting over who the new authority should be, via rebellions, civil wars, one nation conquering another, etc., can be a lot more dangerous and unpredictable. As a result, people living in war-torn areas often wish only for there to be an end to the conflict, for one side to win and become the new government. To such people, a stable government may represent relative peace and security, but the underlying cause of the oppression committed by the stable regimes and the bloodshed which occurs during the struggles for power is the belief in authority. If no one believed in a legitimate ruling class, no one would fight over who should rule. If there was no throne, no one would fight over it. All civil wars and nearly all revolutions rest on the assumption that someone should be in charge. Without the superstition of authority, there would be no reason for such things to happen at all. By its very nature, government adds nothing positive to society. It creates no wealth and generates no virtue. It adds only immoral violence and the illusion that such violence is legitimate. Allowing some people to forcibly dominate all others, which is all that government ever does, does not contribute to society one speck of talent or ability or productivity or resourcefulness or ingenuity or creativity or knowledge or compassion or any other quality possessed by human beings. Instead, It constantly stifles and limits all of those things through its coercive laws It is destructive and insane to accept the notion that civilization requires the forcible limiting of possibilities and the violent restraint of the human mind and spirit that civil society can exist only if the power and virtue of every individual is forcibly overcome and suppressed by a gang of masters and exploiters that the average man cannot be trusted to govern himself, but that politicians can be trusted to govern everyone else, that the only way for the morality and virtue of mankind to shine through is to crush the free will and self-determination of billions of human beings, and to convert them all into unthinking, obedient puppets of the ruling class, and a source of power for tyrants and megalomaniacs, that the path to civilization is the destruction of individual free will judgment and self-determination that is the foundation the heart and soul of the superstition called authority when people are ready to recognize that horrendous lie for what it is and begin to accept personal responsibility for their own actions and for the state of society and not one moment before then true humanity can begin. People can desperately wish for peace on earth until they are blue in the face but they will never see it unless and until they are willing to pay the price by giving up one tired old superstition. The solution to most of society's ills is for you, dear reader, to recognize the myth of authority for what it is. Give it up in yourself and then begin the efforts to deprogram and wake up all of the people you know who, as a result of their indoctrination into the cult of authority worship, and in spite of their virtues and noble intentions, continue to support and participate in the violent, anti-human, destructive and evil oppression, and aggression machine known as government. The Punchline Revisited Contrary to what nearly everyone has been taught to believe, government is not necessary for civilization. It is not conductive to civilization. It is, in fact, the antithesis of civilization. It is not cooperation or working together or voluntary interaction. It is not peaceful coexistence. It is coercion. It is force. It is violence. It is animalistic aggression cloaked by pseudo-religious cult-like rituals which are designed to make it appear legitimate and righteous It is brute thuggery disguised as consent and organization It is enslavement of mankind the subjugation of free will and the destruction of morality masquerading as civilization and society The problem is not just that authority can be used for evil The problem is that At its most basic essence It is evil In everything it does It defeats the free will of human beings Controlling them through coercion and fear It supersedes and destroys moral consciences Replacing them with unthinking blind obedience It cannot be used for good Any more than a bomb can be used to heal a body It is always aggression always the enemy of peace always the enemy of justice. The moment it ceases to be an attacker it ceases to fit the definition of government. It is by its very nature a murderer and a thief the enemy of mankind a poison to humanity. As dominator and controller ruler and oppressor it can be nothing else. The alleged right to rule in any degree and in any form is the opposite of humanity The initiation of violence is the opposite of harmonious coexistence The desire for domination is the opposite of love of mankind Hiding the violence under layers of complex rituals of self-contradictory rationalizations and labeling brute thuggery as virtue and compassion does not change that fact Claiming noble goals Saying that violence is the will of the people, or that it is being committed for the common good, or for the children, cannot change evil into good. Legalizing wrong does not make it right. One man forcibly subjugating another, no matter how it is described or how it is carried out, is uncivilized and immoral. The destruction it causes, the injustice it creates, the damage it does to every soul that it touches, perpetrators, victims, and spectators alike, cannot be undone by calling it law or by claiming that it was necessary. Evil, by any name, is still evil. The ultimate message here is very simple. All of recorded history screams it, yet very few have until now allowed themselves to hear it That message is this If you love death and destruction oppression and suffering injustice and violence repression and torture helplessness and despair perpetual conflict and bloodshed then teach your children to respect authority and teach them that obedience is a virtue If, on the other hand you value peaceful coexistence compassion and cooperation freedom and justice then teach your children the principle of self-ownership teach them to respect the rights of every human being and teach them to recognize and reject the belief in authority for what it is the most irrational self-contradictory anti-human evil destructive and dangerous superstition the world has ever known I will conclude the recording of this audiobook by saying none of the ideas in this book do I personally disagree with. That being said this is one of the main reasons I chose to narrate it. I feel that anarchy the absence of a ruling class is the only way of achieving true equality and freedom. I don't know if I will ever witness the day when the word anarchy will be obsolete because so many will act in a manner of self-ownership and responsibility. But I think sharing the ideas in this book will definitely help. I hope you have discovered some new ways of looking at things from this book. Whether you agree or not, just knowing I have helped expose you to ways of thought, not often, if ever, discussed, makes me proud of the time and effort I have put into this recording. If you have enjoyed the ideas in this book and are hungry for more, please visit LarkinRose.com or the many videos on YouTube that Larkin Rose has produced. And finally, if you have enjoyed the quality of this book and would like to work with me on other projects, please contact me, Stephen Thomas, at AnarchyStick at Yahoo.com or AnarchyStick.com If you have purchased this book by donating to The Mirror Project, thank you. And if this book is given to you by a friend or family member and you've enjoyed it, please consider donating to The Mirror Project by Larkin Rose at www.larkinrose.com.